Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old-fashioned active allocators of capital. Who is leading the charge? Who is disrupting? Who is being disrupted? How does the frenetic political and economic backdrop feed into the investment process and really understand why we invest in the first place? On this episode of the podcast, I'm talking to Bill Dinning, our Chief Investment Officer and Chair of our Asset Allocation Committee here at Waverton. This is the second of a two-part episode with Bill, where we are discussing this idea of a new type of stagflation. In the first episode, we covered the causes of inflation, the damaging effects it can have on the general population, and how policymakers may respond. In this second episode, we're going to be talking about the history of paper money and exploring some more experimental monetary and fiscal policies, including MMT, and whether or not we're in for a mass redistribution of wealth. This is the Why Invest podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. Let's move on to different policy responses to inflation, namely central banking policy um, and specifically within that interest rates. So Bill, what are interest rates? Who sets them? And what effect do they are they meant to have on inflation? Let's go back to the first type of inflation, which is CPI, RPI. Um, well, interest rates are are designed to basically be the cost of money. So um, it, it, all of these things are extremely complicated. There there is a history of interest rates that uh, goes back about five thousand years. There's been various academic work on it. There was famously a chart produced by the. Uh, Chief Economist at the Bank of England about five years ago that charted interest rates going back 5,000 years. So um, any uh, society, even in, uh, e- even in ancient times, uh, has set some sort of price of money. So what does that mean? It means, So in ancient times, um, for a lot of times, it, it looks as though the sort of benchmark interest rate was about 20%. What that meant was that somebody would be given, if somebody received a loan, they would be given five years to pay it back. Simplifying, that's kind of where you got that 20% from. Um, Today, um, the price of money is set by central banks. In the developed world, most of those central banks are at least nominally independent of government. Uh, So, use the words nominally. Um, Well, there are clearly times when public policy would suggest that the central bank might operate policies that are designed to do things that aren't just about monitoring inflation. In so, an election year, perhaps? Not necessarily. Okay. Just, I, I, I don't want to be too cynical. Mm-hmm. No, you can be cynical. Uh, you and, I, and I'm the older one in the room. It's, it's sad to hear such cynicism from across the table. Um, so central banks set, inflate, set uh, interest rates uh, some central banks' primary target is inflation. That's certainly true in Europe with the central bank, uh, uh, the European Central Bank. 
Uh, it's traditionally been more of a focus too for the Bank of England since it got independence in 1997. The Federal Reserve in the United States has always had a sort of dual mandate, which is not just controlling inflation, but also uh, attempting to produce full employment, i.e. encouraging growth as well as uh, monitoring inflation. So when, but predominantly, it's probably fair to say that historically central banks have been setting interest rates uh, as part of their uh, armory of uh, trying to control uh, inflation. So if they want to reduce inflation in the old days, they would raise interest rates significantly. And that certainly happened in this country and in the United States in the uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. And it was uh, arguably that policy worked. Um, Do you think the policy of reducing interest rates to negative and indeed zero, uh, sorry, to zero and indeed negative, has that worked to fight deflation, the deflation that we were talking about earlier that we've seen since? The- um, I, I, think, I think in some cases there's not much evidence it has, uh, which the best example is Japan, which I think began to have uh, negative price inflation in 1995, so that's 25 years ago, um, and has struggled to... Uh, to, to get out of that, they have done for short periods of time, but they're still stuck in a in a bit of a rut, at least when it comes to inflation. Although in other ways, the Japan is the Japanese economy. In other ways, if, if measuring it, they're fine. It's fine, as ever with ec- economic economics is a uh, is a school that has uh, uh, loads and loads of statistics associated with it. So you can. You can come up with all sorts of different conclusions. It's very messy science. It's not really a science. <laughs> but I think um, I, th- I think in terms of Japan, you'd argue that it's been a difficult challenge there. I, I, I certainly I think the combination of policies in in the UK and in the US of having interest rates at zero and doing other things to attempt to stimulate the economy, and specifically this so-called quantitative easing, where central banks buy assets in the marketplace in an effort to put money into the marketplace that then investors and other people can use on other things, which is an attempt to boost the economy. I, th- I think you could argue that... But that, I'm just going to pause on that. What, do you think that um, central bankers implementing QE, quantitative easing, buying assets in the market, um, government bonds, and actually even further down the risk curve into investment credit and indeed... Um, I think more recently, Fallen Angels. Um, has that stimulated growth or has that um, played into this enormous asset bubble? I, I certainly think that the first order effect has been to support financial asset prices. But um, in 2008-9 in particular, the policy did prevent the economy collapsing in the way that was feared so the benchmark being the Great Depression. Um, I, I think there probably was some benefit to, to, to the policy back then. Um, I'm not sure whether or not um, the policy can be deemed to be a success, though, when it's been going on for 12 years. And in fact, in the last four months, uh, it has been accelerated to an extent that was ne- has never previously been seen. So we we were in a unique situation following 2008-9 in many ways, and we've become um, uh, it's become more normal now. And in fact, it's being done uh, 
to a greater extent than was imagined then. And so it isn't just in terms of the quantity of the assets. As you said, it's also to some extent the type of assets. And it's also the fact that here in the UK, you know, the market is starting to price in negative interest rates, which both the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve have, have been very loath to do, I think. Um, That's just on <clears throat> negative interest rates. Well, I think it might be worth explaining why would any investor, institutional or otherwise, pay another person to look after their money? Because that's um, kind of what it is. Yeah, I think it's a it's well, it's a and combination. Of, it's, fourteen trillion. It's um, a combination of greed and fear. So the fear bit is that uh, at least if I have my money in in a contract with a, a sovereign government, they will pay me back. Whereas if I just put the money under a mattress, somebody might steal it. And if I put the money in a private sector banking institution, I might not trust it. The greed bit is that well. Uh, let's take here in the UK. So short-term bond yields in the United Kingdom in recent uh, weeks have, have gone negative. And in fact, the two-year bond yield, so this is the yield that the UK government can borrow at for two years, uh, that yield is now more negative than the equivalent yield in uh, Japan, which hasn't happened before. So the market is starting to price in that here in the UK uh, we might go to negative interest rates. I'm, I'm, I think the Bank of England will resist that, but that's what the market's saying. Why would you buy a two-year bond um, at a negative interest rate? Well, you might argue, well, look, it's only just negative. It isn't really made negative. Look at how negative bond yields are in Europe. If the UK really is going to be like Europe, I'm going to make a lot of money as that uh, negative interest rates get gets more. on the capital appreciation. So, so it's a combination of people speculating that there will be uh, genuine negative interest rates here, and that therefore the level of negative interest rates uh, might uh, might increase, which means that you would make more money on hmm. on that instrument. But I think mostly it's it's a fear thing, and and that's. Part of the reason why ultimately that policy, I think, is is controversial and may not work. You know, if you've got negative interest rates and you've got a central bank that's buying up assets, if you were uh, an economic agent and that's all you knew, you might think, my God, things must be really bad. Well, let's stay on unusual policy responses. And I know you've written an awful lot about this. Um, the introduction of MMT, modern monetary theory. Um, we better start by saying what is modern monetary theory and is it likely to happen? Is it already happening? Um, well, there's, there, it's an interesting, uh, I mean, I, you know, if, you, if, if your listeners want to, I, I, I think probably the, the most easily, uh, the best communicator on it is, a, is an academic called Stephanie Kelton who is uh, widely available on, on YouTube and, and across the internet. And she's probably the, the best advocate for it in many ways, um, although there are others. Uh, so her argument is basically that uh, governments can um, spend money and central banks can uh, print money uh, as long as our old friend inflation uh, isn't uh, coming back. So the argument, I think, to, without wanting to oversimplify it, is that if there's no inflation, 
then uh, a government and a central bank can work together to print money to stimulate the economy. And what the benefit of that is, is it means that it can create an environment where, let's say that not just uh, doing the high-speed rail connection between London and the Midlands and ultimately mm -hmm. the Northwest, let's say that we did that. Let's also say that we rebuild Heathrow Airport, which you wouldn't put where it is at the moment. Um, the Prime Minister, when he was Mayor of London, wanted to put it uh, to the east of London. Maybe that might be quite a good project. Um, we, we could print the money uh, to, to, to do that, and that would require employing tens of thousands of people. Uh, and if you do that multiple times, you can create jobs. And, and the MMT argument is that, that without doing that, all you're doing is by by doing things like quantitative easing and our zero interest rates, all you're really doing is supporting financial asset prices. So it goes back to the original conversation we were having around redistribution of wealth. It's a way of getting more people to participate. But what happens at some point, and I don't know, maybe this is too theoretical, but at some point um, there must be an, uh, an end point to that. Or, or, or that policy, because you know we've we've if you take a three hundred year view, we've seen hyperinflation um, rear its ugly head many times. Um, why would it be different this time? Um, I mean, I'm not an advocate of uh, of MMT, but I I think um, what M to some extent MMT is sort of taking. Um, the whole notion of fiat money. So uh, paper money. Paper money to its logical extreme. So basically, after World War II, there was a, a, a monetary, global monetary system in place, which was named after the uh, hotel in New Hampshire that, uh, that the, the meeting took place that set it up uh, towards the tail end of World War II. So the Bretton Woods regime set exchange rates uh, for the major developed uh, countries. And those exchange rate moved around. The UK devalued in the late 40s. It devalued in the 60s. But the exchange rates lasted, were pretty stable. And the exchange rates were stable partly because um, a government's uh, currency had to be backed by gold reserves. I'm, over, gonna, I'm oversimplifying. We're covering, <laughs> but in, in 1971, um, President Nixon took the United States off gold standard. Um, and that led to the, the, the collapse of the Bretton Woods system. And so what you've then had is a period where uh, central banks uh, print money, and they don't just print currency. They also uh, print money via um, uh, the commercial banking system. And that, that money is not backed. It, there are, all central banks hold some reserves, but there isn't a formula for what that those reserves should be. So when you have when you're carrying around a, a ten pound note, you uh, believe that that can be exchanged for goods and services worth ten pounds because you have faith that the people printing it uh, will uh, will back it up. Um, MMT takes that notion to an extreme. So it just says, well, actually, <clears throat> we're, the thing that that says is we, we don't really have to care about the size of government deficits. So one of the things that's, that's coming out of 
the government's responses around the world to the COVID-19 crisis is that budget deficits and the levels of, of budget, uh, blood, levels of government debt are rising. So the level of UK debt is back to 1964 levels. And the reason it's gone back there is between the end of World War II, uh, we were still paying off the debt that we'd accumulated during World War II. So but in, the, in the 60s and 70s, we then went through quite a, um, as we touched on earlier, a, quite a sharp period of inflation, which inflated a lot of that debt away. Yeah. How, is, how are we going to get through this debt pile? Yeah, uh, yeah, and obviously the timing of the removal of the gold standard, some people argue, was also influenced, had another sort of knock-on effect on inflation. <laughs> but going, getting back to, to, to the MMT idea, have we reached a point where governments in the developed world are doing modern monetary theory, where they don't really care about the extent to which they issue debt uh, and they're issuing debt directly to the central bank, which is the other part of it. You just say, right, the central bank is going to buy di debt directly from the UK Treasury or the, uh, uh, or the debt management office, as it is technically in this case, or that the US central bank is going to buy money, buy debt directly from the US Treasury. We haven't quite got there yet. However, we're getting close. Uh, very curiously, in Indonesia, the central bank in Indonesia uh, in the last couple of weeks has concocted a plan to buy debt directly from the Indonesian government. And some of the debt it buys directly from the Indonesian government will not have a coupon on it. So it will be a zero coupon bond. The bond yield in Indonesia is 7%. So the central bank is, yeah, that's very close mm -hmm. to sort of monetizing debt. Now, it's not quite there yet because the zero coupon bond has a maturity date. And consequently, there is a contract that says that uh, the central bank buys that bond from the government in return for cash that the government will then spend on things. But in, say, seven years' time, the government will repay the central bank. So at the moment, the fiat currency contract is still operational. Hmm. Where MMT could go, though, is that we basically say, don't be silly. All it, or it's an accounting item. There needs to be an asset on the balance sheet of the central bank that allows it to print money. At the moment, in the case of the UK and the US, all of the assets that the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve own have a price. There is a market price for every asset they own. If we get to the point where the Bank of England is buying directly from the Treasury or the Federal Reserve is buying directly from the US Treasury, an instrument that only has value to the central bank, then we are... We're in MMT, we're in helicopter money, we're in whatever you call it. And the way to do that, one way to do it, would be that the Treasury in this country would issue a zero coupon perpetual bond. Zero coupon, so no, so no, no interest, interest rate. It doesn't pay any interest. as in um, it's a forever. Net, it's a forever. And there are no. government, UK government perpetual securities mm -hmm. out there, but they have a coupon. Mm -hmm. This would be a zero coupon perpetual. Mm -hmm. And that would be an asset on the balance sheet of the Bank of England. But that asset would not really have any value except to a private 
sector party that was so keen to own a sterling asset that it would take that. But that is pretty close to well, money. Well, who would that be a pension from? No, that would be somebody money laundering. For conventional uh, market participants, MMT's scary is that, that the knock-on effect of, of printing money without there being anything behind it that has, that has got some sort of value, uh, that's, that would certainly be an experiment. And it, and it might not end well. Bill Dinning, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, and our guest this week, Bill Dinning. If you would like more information on any of the content discussed in this podcast, please go to our website at waverton.co.uk. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe to the show and rate it and tell your friends. Thank you. Thank you.